Part One of The Naval War of eighteen twelve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. The Naval War of eighteen twelve by Theodore Roosevelt. Part One. Preface. The history of the naval events of the War of 1812 has been repeatedly presented both to the American and the English reader. Historical writers have treated it either in connection with a general account of the contest on land and sea, or as forming a part of the complete record of the navies of the two nations. A few monographs, which confine themselves strictly to the naval occurrences, have also appeared but none of these works can be regarded as giving a satisfactorily full or impartial account of the war, some of them being of the popular and loosely constructed order, while others treat it from a purely partisan standpoint. No single book can be quoted which would be accepted by the modern reader as doing justice to both sides, or, indeed, as telling the whole story. Anyone specially interested in the subject must read all, and then it will seem almost a hopeless task to reconcile the many and wildly contradictory statements he will meet with. There appear to be three works which, taken in combination, give the best satisfaction on the subject. First is James's Naval History of Great Britain which supplies both the material and the opinions of almost every subsequent English or Canadian historian, can be found the British view of the case. It is an invaluable work, written with fullness and care. On the other hand, it is also a piece of special pleading by a bitter and not over-scrupulous partisan. This, in the second place, can be partially supplemented by Fenimore Cooper's Naval History of the United States. The latter gives the American view of the cruises and battles, but it is much less of an authority than James's, both because it is written without great regard for exactness, and because all figures for the American side need to be supplied from Lieutenant, now Admiral, George E. Emmons's statistical history of the united states navy which is the third of the works in question but even after comparing these three authors many contradictions remain unexplained and the truth can only be reached in such cases by a careful examination of the navy records the london naval chronicle niles register and other similar documentary publications Almost the only good criticisms on the actions are those incidentally given in standard works on other subjects, such as Lord Howard Douglas's Naval Gunnery and Admiral Urion de la Graviere, Guerres Maritimes. Much of the material in our Navy Department has never been touched at all. In short, no full, accurate, and unprejudiced history of the war has ever been written 
the subject merits a closer scrutiny than it has received at present people are beginning to realize that it is folly for the great english-speaking republic to rely for defence upon a navy composed partly of antiquated hulks and partly of new vessels rather more worthless than the old it is worth while to study with some care that period of our history during which our navy stood at the highest pitch of its fame and to learn anything from the past it is necessary to know as near as may be the exact truth accordingly the work should be written impartially if only from the narrowest motives without abating a jot from one's devotion to his country and flag i think a history can be made just enough to warrant its being received as an authority equally among americans and englishmen i have endeavored to supply such a work it is impossible that errors both of fact and opinion should not have crept into it and although i have sought to make it in character as non-partisan as possible these errors will probably be in favor of the american side as my only object is to give an accurate narrative of events i shall esteem it a particular favor if any one will furnish me with the means of rectifying such mistakes and if i have done injustice to any commander or officer of any grade whether american or british i shall consider myself under great obligations to those who will set me right i have been unable to get access to the original reports of the british commanders the logs of the british ships or their muster rolls and so have been obliged to take them at second hand from the gazette or naval chronicle or some standard history the american official letters log-books original contracts muster rolls etc however being preserved in the archives at washington i have been able thanks to the courtesy of the hon william h hunt secretary of the navy to look them over the set of letters from the officers is very complete in three series captain's letters master's commandant letters and officers letters there being several volumes for each year the books of contracts contain valuable information as to the size and build of some of the vessels the log books are rather exasperating often being very incomplete thus when i turned from decatur's extremely vague official letter describing the capture of the macedonian to the logbook of the frigate united states not a fact about the fight could be gleaned the last entry in the log on the day of the fight is strange sail discovered to be a frigate under english colors and the next entry on the following day relates to the removal of the prisoners the log of the enterprise is very full indeed for most of the time but is a perfect blank for the period during which she was commanded by lieutenant burrows and in which she fought the boxer i have not been able to find the peacock's log at all though there is a very full set of letters from her commander 
probably the fire of eighteen thirty seven destroyed a great deal of valuable material whenever it was possible i have referred to printed matter in preference to manuscript and my authorities can thus in many cases be easily consulted in conclusion i desire to express my sincerest thanks to captain james d bullock formerly of the united states navy and commander adolf mensing formerly of the german navy without whose advice and sympathy this work would probably never have been written or even begun new york city eighteen eighty two preface to third edition i originally intended to write a companion volume to this which should deal with the operations on land but a short examination showed that these operations were hardly worth serious study they teach nothing new it is the old old lesson that a miserly economy in preparation may in the end involve a lavish outlay of men and money which after all comes too late to more than partially offset the evils produced by the original short-sighted parsimony this might be a lesson worth dwelling on did it have any practical bearing on the issues of the present day but it has none as far as the army is concerned it was criminal folly for jefferson and his follower madison to neglect to give us a force either of regulars or of well-trained volunteers during the twelve years they had in which to prepare for the struggle that any one might see was inevitable but there is now far less need of an army than there was then circumstances have altered widely since eighteen twelve instead of the decaying might of spain on our southern border we have the still weaker power of mexico instead of the great indian nations of the interior able to keep civilization at bay to hold in check strong armies to ravage large stretches of territory and needing formidable military expeditions to overcome them there are now only left broken and scattered bands which are sources of annoyance merely to the north we are still hemmed in by the canadian possessions of great britain but since eighteen twelve our strength has increased so prodigiously both absolutely and relatively while england's military power has remained almost stationary that we need now be under no apprehension from her land forces for even if checked in the beginning we could not help conquering in the end by sheer weight of numbers if by nothing else so that there is now no cause for our keeping up a large army while on the contrary the necessity for an efficient navy is so evident that only our almost incredible short-sightedness prevents our at once preparing one not only do the events of the war on land teach very little to the statesman who studies history in order to avoid in the present the mistakes of the past but besides this the battles and campaigns are of little interest to the student of military matters the british regulars trained in many wars thrashed the raw troops opposed to them 
whenever they had anything like a fair chance but this is not to be wondered at for the same thing has always happened the world over under similar conditions our defeats were exactly such as any man might have foreseen and there is nothing to be learned from the follies committed by incompetent commanders and untrained troops when in the presence of skilled officers having under them disciplined soldiers the humiliating surrenders abortive attacks and panic routs of our armies can all be paralleled in the campaigns waged by napoleon's marshals against the spaniards and portuguese in the years immediately preceding the outbreak of our own war the peninsula troops were as little able to withstand the french veterans as were our own militia to hold their own against the british regulars but it must always be remembered to our credit that while seven years of fighting failed to make the spaniards able to face the french footnote at the closing battle of toulouse fought between the allies and the french the flight of the spaniards was so rapid and universal as to draw from the duke of wellington the bitter observation that though he had seen a good many remarkable things in the course of his life yet this was the first time he had ever seen ten thousand men running a race and a footnote two years of warfare gave us soldiers who could stand against the best men of britain on the northern frontier we never developed a great general brown's claim to the title rests only on his not having committed the phenomenal follies of his predecessors but by eighteen fourteen our soldiers had become seasoned and we had acquired some good brigade commanders notably scott so that in that year we played on even terms with the british but the battles though marked by as bloody and obstinate fighting as ever took place were waged between small bodies of men and were not distinguished by any feats of generalship so that they are not of any special interest to the historian in fact the only really noteworthy feat of arms of the war took place at new orleans and the only military genius that the struggle developed was andrew jackson his deeds are worthy of all praise and the battle he won was in many ways so peculiar as to make it well worth a much closer study than it has yet received it was by far the most prominent event of the war it was a victory which reflected high honor on the general and soldiers who won it and it was in its way as remarkable as any of the great battles that took place about the same time in europe such being the case i have devoted a chapter to its consideration at the conclusion of the chapters devoted to the naval operations as before said the other campaigns on land do not deserve very minute attention but for the sake of rendering the account of the battle of new orleans more intelligible i will give a hasty sketch of the principal engagements that took place elsewhere 
the war opened in mid-summer of eighteen twelve by the campaign of general hull on the michigan frontier with two or three thousand raw troops he invaded canada about the same time fort mackinaw was surrendered by its garrison of sixty americans to a british and indian force of six hundred hull's campaign was unfortunate from the beginning near brownstown the american colonel van horn with some two hundred men was ambushed and routed by tecumseh and his indians in revenge colonel miller with six hundred americans at maguaga attacked one hundred and fifty british and canadians under captain muir and two hundred and fifty indians under tecumseh and whipped them tecumseh's indians standing their ground longest the americans lost seventy-five their foes one hundred eighty men at chicago the small force of sixty-six americans was surprised and massacred by the indians meanwhile general brock the british commander advanced against hull with a rapidity and decision that seemed to paralyze his senile and irresolute opponent the latter retreated to detroit where without striking a blow he surrendered fourteen hundred men to brock's nearly equal force which consisted nearly one-half of indians under tecumseh on the niagara frontier an estimable and honest old gentleman and worthy citizen who knew nothing of military matters general van rensselaer tried to cross over and attack the british at queenstown eleven hundred americans got across and were almost all killed or captured by a nearly equal number of british canadians and indians while on the opposite side a large number of their countrymen looked on and with abject cowardice refused to cross to their assistance the command of the army was then handed over to a ridiculous personage named smythe who issued proclamations so bombastic that they really must have come from an unsound mind and then made a ludicrously abortive effort at invasion which failed almost of its own accord a british and canadian force of less than four hundred men was foiled in an assault on ogdensburg after a slight skirmish by about one thousand americans under brown and with this trifling success the military operations of the year came to an end early in eighteen thirteen ogdensburg was again attacked this time by between five hundred and six hundred british who took it after a brisk resistance from some three hundred militia the british lost sixty and the americans twenty in killed and wounded general harrison meanwhile had begun the campaign in the northwest at frenchtown on the river raisin winchester's command of about nine hundred western troops was surprised by a force of eleven hundred men half of them indians under the british colonel proctor the right division taken by surprise gave up at once the left division mainly kentucky riflemen 
and strongly posted in houses and stockaded enclosures made a stout resistance and only surrendered after a bloody fight in which one hundred and eighty british and about half as many indians were killed or wounded over three hundred americans were slain some in battle but most in the bloody massacre that followed after this general harrison went into camp at fort meggs where with about eleven hundred men he was besieged by one thousand british and canadians under proctor and twelve hundred indians under tecumseh a force of twelve hundred kentucky militia advanced to his relief and tried to cut its way into the fort while the garrison made a sortie the sortie was fairly successful but the kentuckians were scattered like chaff by the british regulars in the open and when broken were cut to pieces by the indians in the woods nearly two-thirds of the relieving troops were killed or captured about four hundred got into the fort soon afterward proctor abandoned the siege fort stevenson garrisoned by major crogan and one hundred sixty men was attacked by a force of three hundred ninety-one british regulars who tried to carry it by assault and were repulsed with the loss of a fourth of their number some four thousand indians joined proctor but most of them left him after perry's victory on lake erie then harrison having received large reinforcements invaded canada at the river thames his army of thirty five hundred men encountered and routed between six hundred and seven hundred british under proctor and about one thousand indians under tecumseh the battle was decided at once by a charge of the kentucky mounted riflemen who broke through the regulars took them in rear and captured them and then dismounting attacked the flank of the indians who were also assailed by the infantry proctor escaped by the skin of his teeth and tecumseh died fighting like the hero that he was this battle ended the campaign in the northwest in this quarter it must be remembered that the war was on the part of the americans mainly won against indians the latter always forming over half of the british forces many of the remainder were french canadians and the others were regulars the american armies on the contrary were composed of the armed settlers of kentucky and ohio native americans of english speech and blood who were battling for lands that were to form the heritage of their children in the west the war was only the closing act of the struggle that for many years had been waged by the hardy and restless pioneers of our race as with rifle and axe they carved out the mighty empire that we their children inherit it was but the final effort with which they wrested from the indian lords of the soil the wide and fair domain that now forms the heart of our great republic it was the breaking down of the last barrier that stayed the flood of our civilization it settled once and forever that henceforth the law the tongue and the blood of the land should be neither indian nor yet french but english
the few French of the West were fighting against a race that was to leave as little trace of them as of the doomed Indian peoples with whom they made common cause. The presence of the British mercenaries did not alter the character of the contest. It merely served to show the bitter and narrow hatred with which the mother island regarded her greater daughter, predestined as the latter was to be queen of the lands that lay beyond the Atlantic. Meanwhile, on Lake Ontario, the Americans made successful descents on York and Fort George, scattering or capturing their comparatively small garrisons, while a counter-descent by the British on Sackett's Harbour failed, the attacking force being too small. After the capture of Fort George, the Americans invaded Canada, but their advance guard, 1,400 strong, under Generals Chandler and Winder, was surprised in the night by 800 British, who, advancing with the bayonet, broke up the camp, capturing both the generals and half the artillery. Though the assailants, who lost 220 of their small number, suffered much more than the Americans, yet the latter were completely demoralized, and at once retreated to Fort George. Soon afterward, Colonel Burstler, with about 600 men, surrendered with shamefully brief resistance to a somewhat smaller force of British and Indians. Then about 300 British crossed the Niagara to attack Black Rock, which they took, but were afterward driven off by a large body of militia with the loss of 40 men. Later in the season, the American General McClure wantonly burned the village of Newark, and then retreated in panic flight across the Niagara. In retaliation, the British in turn crossed the river. Six hundred regulars surprised and captured in the night Fort Niagara with its garrison of four hundred men. Two thousand troops attacked Black Rock, and after losing over a hundred men in a smart engagement with somewhat over fifteen hundred militia, whom they easily dispersed, captured and burned both it and Buffalo. Before these last events took place, another invasion of Canada had been attempted, this time under General Wilkinson, an unprincipled imbecile, as Scott very properly styled him. It was mismanaged in every possible way, and was a total failure. It was attended with but one battle, that of Chrysler's farm, in which one thousand British, with the loss of less than two hundred men, beat back double their number of Americans, who lost nearly five hundred men, and also one piece of artillery. The American army near Lake Champlain had done nothing, its commander, General Wade Hampton, being, if possible, even more incompetent than Wilkinson. He remained stationary, while a small force of British plundered Plattsburg and Burlington. Then, with five thousand men, he crossed into Canada, but returned almost immediately after a small skirmish at Chadagway between his advanced guard and some five hundred Canadians, in which the former lost forty-one and the latter twenty-two men. 
this affair in which hardly a tenth of the american force was engaged has been absurdly enough designated a battle by most british and canadian historians in reality it was the incompetency of their general and not the valor of their foes that caused the retreat of the americans the same comment by the way applies to the so-called battle of plattsburgh in the following year which may have been lost by sir george prevost but was certainly not won by the americans and again a similar criticism should be passed on general wilkinson's attack at la Cole mill near the head of the same lake neither one of the three affairs was a stand-up fight in each a great superior force led by an utterly incapable general retreated after a slight skirmish with an enemy whose rout would have been a matter of certainty had the engagement been permitted to grow serious in the early spring of eighteen fourteen a small force of one hundred sixty american regulars under captain holmes fighting from behind felled logs routed two hundred british with a loss of sixty-five men they themselves losing but eight on lake ontario the british made a descent on oswego took it by fair assault and afterward lost one hundred eighty men who tried to cut out some american transports and were killed or captured to a man all through the spring and early summer the army on the niagara frontier was carefully drilled by brown and more especially by scott and the results of this drilling were seen in the immensely improved effectiveness of the soldiers in the campaign that opened in july fort erie was captured with little resistance and on the fourth of july at the river chippeway brown with two brigades of regulars each about twelve hundred strong under scott and ripley and a brigade of eight hundred militia and indians under porter making a total of about thirty two hundred men won a stand-up fight against the british general rial who had nearly twenty five hundred men eighteen hundred of them regulars porter's brigade opened by driving in the canadian militia and the indians but was itself checked by the british light troops ripley's brigade took very little part in the battle three of the regiments not being engaged at all and the fourth so slightly as to lose but five men the entire brunt of the action was borne by scott's brigade which was fiercely attacked by the bulk of the british regulars under rial the latter advanced with great bravery but were terribly cut up by the fire of scott's regulars and when they had come nearly up to him scott charged with the bayonet and drove them clean off the field the american loss was three hundred twenty two including twenty three indians the british loss was five hundred and fifteen excluding that of the indians the number of americans actually engaged did not exceed that of the british and scott's brigade in fair fight closed by a bayonet charge defeated an equal force of british regulars on july twenty fifth occurred the battle of niagara or lundy's lane 
fought between general brown with thirty one hundred footnote as near as can be found out most american authorities make it much less lossing for example says only twenty four hundred end of footnote americans and general drummond with thirty five hundred footnote general drummond in his official letter makes it but twenty eight hundred james who give the details makes it three thousand rank and file adding thirteen per cent for the officers sergeants and drummers brings it up to thirty four hundred and we still have to count in the artillery drivers etc and a footnote british it was brought on by accident in the evening and and was waged with obstinate courage and savage slaughter till midnight on both sides the forces straggled into action by detachments the americans formed the attacking party as before scott's brigade bore the brunt of the fight and over half of his men were killed or wounded he himself was disabled and borne from the field the struggle was of the most desperate character the combatants showing a stubborn courage that could not be surpassed footnote general drummond writes in so determined a manner were their attacks directed against our guns that our artillerymen were bayoneted while in the act of loading and the muzzle of the enemy's guns were advanced within a few yards of ours even james says upon the whole however the american troops fought bravely and the conduct of many of the officers of the artillery corps especially would have done honor to any service End of footnote. charge after charge was made with the bayonet and the artillery was taken and retaken once and again the loss was nearly equal on the side of the americans eight hundred fifty four men including generals brown and scott wounded and two guns on that of the british eight hundred seventy eight men including general real captured and one gun each side claimed it as victory over superior numbers the truth is beyond question that the british had the advantage in numbers and a still greater advantage in position while it is equally beyond question that it was a defeat and not a victory for the americans they left the field and retired in perfect order to fort erie while the british held the field and the next day pursued their foes having received some reinforcements general drummond now with about thirty six hundred men pushed forward to besiege fort erie in which was the american army some twenty four hundred strong under general gaines colonel tucker with five hundred british regulars was sent across the niagara to destroy the batteries at block rock but was defeated by three hundred american regulars under major morgan fighting from behind a strong breastwork of felled trees with a creek in front on the night of the fifteenth of august the british in three columns advanced to storm the american works but after making a most determined assault were beaten off the assailants lost nine hundred men the assailed about eighty 
after this nothing was done till september seventeenth when general brown who had resumed command of the american forces determined upon and executed a sortie each side had received reinforcements the americans numbered over three thousand the british nearly four thousand the fighting was severe the americans losing five hundred men but their opponents lost six hundred men and most of their batteries were destroyed each side as usual claimed the victory but exactly as lundy's lane must be accounted an american defeat as our forces retreated from the ground so this must be considered an american victory for after it the british broke up camp and drew off to chip away nothing more was done and on november fifth the american army recrossed the niagara though marked by some brilliant feats of arms this four months invasion of canada like those that had preceded it thus came to nothing but at the same time a british invasion of the united states was repulsed far more disgracefully sir george prevost with an army of thirteen thousand veteran troops marched south along the shores of lake champlain to plattsburg which was held by general macomb with two thousand regulars and perhaps double that number of nearly worthless militia a force that the british could have scattered to the winds though as they were strongly posted not without severe loss but the british fleet was captured by commodore macdonough in the fight on the lake and then sir george after some heavy skirmishing between the outposts of the armies in which the americans had the advantage fled precipitately back to canada all through the war the seacoasts of the united states had been harried by small predatory excursions a part of what is now the state of maine was conquered with little resistance and kept until the close of hostilities and some of the towns on the shores of chesapeake bay had been plundered or burnt in august eighteen fourteen a more serious invasion was planned and some five thousand troops regulars sailors and marines were landed under the command of general ross so utterly helpless was the democratic administration at washington that during the two years of warfare hardly any steps had been taken to protect the capital or the country round about what little was done was done entirely too late and bungled badly in addition history has not yet done justice to the ludicrous and painful folly and stupidity of which the government founded by jefferson and carried on by madison was guilty both in its preparations for and and its way of carrying on this war nor is it yet realized that the men just mentioned and their associates are primarily responsible for the loss we suffered in it and the bitter humiliation some of its incidents caused us the small british army marched at will through virginia and maryland burned washington and finally retreated from before baltimore and re-embarked to take part in the expedition against new orleans twice at bladensburg and north point 
it came in contact with superior numbers of militia in fairly good position in each case the result was the same after some preliminary skirmishing manoeuvring and volley firing the british charged with the bayonet the rawest elements among the american militia then broke at once the others kept pretty steady pouring in quite a destructive fire until the regulars had come up close to them when they also fled the british regulars were too heavily loaded to pursue and owing to their mode of attack and the rapidity with which their opponents ran away the loss of the latter was in each case very slight at north point however the militia being more experienced behaved better than at bladensburg in neither case were the british put to any trouble to win their victory the above is a brief sketch of the campaigns of the war it is not cheerful reading for an american nor yet of interest to a military student and its lessons have been taught so often by similar occurrences in other lands under like circumstances and moreover teach such self-evident truths that they scarcely need to be brought to the notice of an historian but the crowning event of the war was the battle of new orleans remarkable in its military aspect and a source of pride to every american it is well worth a more careful study and to it i have devoted the last chapter of this work signed new york city eighteen eighty three chapter one the view professed by great britain in eighteen twelve respecting the rights of belligerents and neutrals was diametrically opposite to that held by the united states between england and the united states of america writes a british author a spirit of animosity caused chiefly by the impressment of british seamen or of seamen asserted to be such from on board of american merchant vessels had unhappily subsisted for a long time prior to the war it is we believe he continues an acknowledged maxim of public law as well that no nation but the one he belongs to can release a subject from his natural allegiance as that provided the jurisdiction of another independent state be not infringed every nation has a right to enforce the services of her subjects wherever they may be found nor has any neutral nation such a jurisdiction over her merchant vessels upon the high seas as to exclude a belligerent nation from the right of searching them for contraband of war or for the property or persons of her enemies and if in the exercise of that right the belligerent should discover on board of the neutral vessel a subject who has withdrawn himself from his lawful allegiance the neutral can have no fair ground for refusing to deliver him up more especially if that subject is proved to be a deserter from the sea or land service of the former footnote the naval history of great britain by william james volume four page three hundred and twenty four new edition by captain chaumier r n london eighteen thirty seven End of footnote. Great Britain's doctrine was 
once a subject always a subject on the other hand the united states maintained that any foreigner after five years residence within her territory and after having complied with certain forms became one of her citizens as completely as if he was native-born great britain contended that her warships possessed the right of searching all neutral vessels for the property and persons of her foes the united states resisting this claim asserted that free bottoms made free goods and that consequently her ships when on the high seas should not be molested on any pretext whatever finally great britain's system of impressment footnote the best idea of which can be gained by reading marriott's novels End of footnote, by which men could be forcibly seized and made to serve in her navy no matter at what cost to themselves was repugnant to every american idea such wide differences in the views of the two nations produced endless difficulties to escape the press gang or for other reasons many british seamen took service under the american flag and if they were demanded back it is not likely that they or their american shipmates had much hesitation in swearing either that they were not british at all or else that they had been naturalized as americans equally probable is that the american blockade runners were guilty of a great deal of fraud and more or less thinly veiled perjury but the wrongs done by the americans were insignificant compared with those they received any innocent merchant vessel was liable to seizure at any moment and when overhauled by a british cruiser short of men was sure to be stripped of most of a crew the british officers were themselves the judges as to whether a seaman should be pronounced a native of america or of britain and there was no appeal from their judgment if a captain lacked his full complement there was little doubt as to the view he would take of any man's nationality the wrongs inflicted on our seafaring countrymen by their impressment into foreign ships formed the main cause of the war there were still other grievances which are thus presented by the british admiral cochrane our treatment of its america's citizens was scarcely in accordance with the national privileges to which the young republic had become entitled there were no doubt many individuals among the american people who caring little for the federal government considered it more profitable to break than to keep the laws of nations by aiding and supporting our enemy france and it was against such that the efforts of the squadron had chiefly been directed but the way the object was carried out was scarcely less an infraction of those national laws which we were professedly enforcing the practice of taking english and american seamen out of american ships without regard to the safety of navigating them when thus deprived of their hands has been already mentioned to this may be added the detention of vessels against which nothing contrary to international neutrality could be established 
whereby their cargoes became damaged, thus compelling them on suspicion only to proceed to ports other than those to which they were destined, and generally treating them as though they were engaged in contraband trade. American ships were not permitted to quit English ports without giving security for the discharge of their cargoes in some other British or neutral port. On the same subject, James writes, when by the maritime supremacy of England France could no longer trade for herself, America proffered her services as a neutral to trade for her, and American merchants and their agents in the gains that flowed in soon found a compensation for all the perjury and fraud necessary to cheat the former out of her belligerent rights the high commercial importance of the united states thus obtained coupled with a similarity of language and to a superficial observer a resemblance in person between the natives of america and great britain had caused the former to be the chief if not the only sufferers by the exercise of the right of search chiefly indebted for their growth and prosperity to emigration from europe the united states hold out every allurement to foreigners particularly to british seamen whom by a process peculiarly their own they can naturalize as quickly as a dollar can exchange masters and a blank form ready signed and sworn to can be filled up footnote this is an exaggeration and a footnote it is the knowledge of this fact that makes british naval officers when searching for deserters from their service so harsh in their scrutiny and so sceptical of american oaths and asservations the last sentence of the foregoing from james is an euphemistic way of saying that whenever a british commander short of men came across an american vessel he impressed all of her crew that he wanted whether they were citizens of the united states or not it must be remembered however that the only reason why great britain did us more injury than any other power was because she was able to do so none of her acts were more offensive than napoleon's milan decree by which it was declared that any neutral vessel which permitted itself to be searched by a british cruiser should be considered as british and as the lawful prize of any french vessel french frigates and privateers were very apt to snap up any american vessel they came across and were only withheld at all by the memory of the sharp dressing they had received in the west indies during the quasi war of seventeen ninety nine to eighteen hundred what we undoubtedly ought to have done was to have adopted the measure actually proposed in congress and declared war on both france and england as it was we chose as a foe the one that had done and could still do us the greatest injury the principles for which the united states contended in eighteen twelve are now universally accepted and those so tenaciously maintained by great britain find no advocates in the civilized world that england herself was afterward completely reconciled to our views 
was amply shown by her intense indignation when commodore wilkes in the exercise of the right of search for the persons of the foes of his country stopped the neutral british ship trent while the applause with which the act was greeted in america proves pretty clearly another fact that we have warred for the right not because it was the right but because it agreed with our self-interest to do so we were contending for free trade and sailors rights meaning by the former expression freedom to trade whenever we chose without hindrance from the power with which we were trading and by the latter that a man who happened to be on the sea should have the same protection accorded to a man who remained on land nominally neither of these questions was settled by or even alluded to in the treaty of peace but the immense increase of reputation that the navy acquired during the war practically decided both points in our favor our sailors had gained too great a name for any one to molest them with impunity again holding views on these maritime subjects so radically different from each other the two nations could not but be continually dealing with causes of quarrel not only did the british cruisers molest our merchantmen but at length one of them the fifty-gun ship leopard attacked an american frigate the chesapeake when the latter was so lumbered up that she could not return a shot killed or disabled some twenty of her men and took away four others one briton and three americans who were claimed as deserters for this act an apology was offered but it failed to restore harmony between the two nations soon afterward another action was fought the american frigate president commodore rogers attacked the british sloop little belt captain brigham and exchanged one or two broadsides with her the frigate escaping scot-free while the sloop was nearly knocked to pieces mutual recriminations followed each side insisting that the other was the assailant one great britain issued her orders in council forbidding our trading with france we retaliated by passing an embargo act which prevented us from trading at all there could be but one result to such a succession of incidents and that was war accordingly in june eighteen twelve war was declared and as a contest for the rights of seamen it was largely waged on the ocean we also had not a little fighting to do on land in which as a rule we came out second best few or no preparations for the war had been made and the result was such as might have been anticipated after dragging on through three dreary and uneventful years it came to an end in eighteen fifteen by a peace which left matters in almost precisely the state in which the war had found them on land and water the contest took the form of a succession of petty actions in which the glory acquired by the victor seldom eclipsed the disgrace incurred by the vanquished neither side succeeded in doing what it intended americans declared that canada must and should be conquered but the conquering came quite as near being the other way 
British writers insisted that the American Navy should be swept from the sea, and during the sweeping process it increased fourfold. When the United States declared war, Great Britain was straining every nerve and muscle in a death struggle with the most formidable military despotism of modern times, and was obliged to entrust the defense of her Canadian colonies to a mere handful of regulars, aided by the local fencibles. But Congress had provided even fewer trained soldiers, and relied on militia. The latter chiefly exercised their fighting abilities upon one another in dueling, and as a rule were afflicted with conscientious scruples whenever it was necessary to cross the frontier and attack the enemy. Accordingly, the campaign opened with the bloodless surrender of an American general to a much inferior British force, and the war continued much as it had begun. We suffered disgrace after disgrace, while the losses we inflicted in turn on Great Britain were so slight as hardly to attract her attention. At last, having crushed her greater foe, she turned to crush the lesser, and in her turn suffered ignominious defeat. By this time events had gradually developed a small number of soldiers on our northern frontier who, commanded by Scott and Brown, were able to contend on equal terms with the veteran troops to whom they were opposed, though these formed part of what was then undoubtedly the most formidable fighting infantry any European nation possessed. The battles at this period of the struggle were remarkable for the skill and stubborn courage with which they were waged, as well as for the heavy loss involved. But the number of combatants was so small that, in Europe, they would have been regarded as mere outpost skirmishes, and they wholly failed to attract any attention abroad in that period of colossal armies. When Great Britain seriously turned her attention to her transatlantic foe, and assembled in Canada an army of 14,000 men at the head of Lake Champlain, Congressional forethought enabled it to be opposed by soldiers who, it is true, were as well disciplined, as hardy, and as well commanded as any in the world, but who were only a few hundred strong, backed by more or less incompetent militia. Only Macdonough's skill and Sir George Prevost's incapacity saved us from a serious disaster. The sea fight reflected high honor on our seamen, but the retreat of British land forces was due to their commander, and not their antagonists. Meanwhile a large British fleet in the Chesapeake had not achieved much glory by the destruction of the local oyster-boats and the burning of a few farmers' houses, so an army was landed to strike a decisive blow. At Bladensburg, footnote, see the capture of Washington, by Edward D. Ingram, Philadelphia, 1849, end of footnote. The 5,000 British regulars, utterly worn out by heat and fatigue, by their mere appearance, frightened into a panic, double their number of American militia well posted. But the only success attained was burning the public buildings of Washington. 
and that result was of dubious value. Baltimore was attacked next, and the attack repulsed after the forts and ships had shelled one another with the slight results that usually attend that spectacular and harmless species of war. The close of the contest was marked by the extraordinary battle of New Orleans. It was a perfectly useless shedding of blood, since peace had already been declared. There is hardly another contest of modern times where the defeated side suffered such frightful carnage, while the victors came off almost scatheless. It is quite in accordance with the rest of the war that the militia, hitherto worse than useless, should on this occasion win against great odds in point of numbers, and moreover that their splendid victory should have been of little consequence in its effects upon the result. On the whole the contest by land, where we certainly ought to have been successful, reflected greater credit on our antagonists than upon us, in spite of the services of Scott, Brown, and Jackson. Our small force of regulars and volunteers did excellently. As for the militia, New Orleans proved that they could fight superbly, and the other battles that they generally would not fight at all. At sea, as will appear, the circumstances were widely different. Here we possessed a small but highly effective force, the ships well built, manned by thoroughly trained men, and commanded by able and experienced officers. The deeds of our navy form a part of history over which any American can be pardoned for lingering. Such was the origin, issue, and general character of the war. It may now be well to proceed to a comparison of the authorities on the subject. Allusion has already been made to them in the preface, but a fuller reference seems to be necessary in this connection. At the close of the contest, the large majority of historians who wrote of it were so bitterly rancorous that their statements must be received with caution. For the main facts, I have relied, wherever it was practicable, upon the official letters of the commanding officers, taking each as authority for his own force and loss. Footnote. As where broke states his own force at 330, his antagonists at 440, and the American Court of Inquiry makes the numbers 396 and 379. I have taken them as being 330 and 379, respectively. This is the only just method. I take it for granted that each commander meant to tell the truth, and of course knew his own force, while he might very naturally, and in perfect good faith, exaggerate his antagonists. End of footnote. For all the British victories we have British official letters, which tally almost exactly, as regards matters of fact and not of opinion, with the corresponding American accounts. For the first year the British also published official accounts of their defeats, which in the cases of Gourier, Macedonian, and Frolic I have followed as closely as the accounts of the American victors. The last British official letter, published announcing a defeat, 
was that in the case of the java and it is the only letter that i have not strictly accepted the fact that no more were published thereafter is of itself unfortunate and from the various contradictions it contains it would appear to have been tampered with the surgeon's report accompanying it is certainly false subsequent to eighteen twelve no letter of a defeated british commander was published footnote except about the battles on the lake where i have accordingly given the same credit to the accounts both of the british and of the americans and a footnote and i have to depend upon the various british historians especially james of whom more anon end of part one